You are listening to audio from Riverside Church. If you would like to check out more resources, please visit riverside.church. Good morning, Riverside. Uh, For those of you that don't know, my name is David, or Dave, most people call me Dave. And welcome to the beginning of what I think is the home stretch. Looks like we have four weeks remaining, including this morning in the summer in the Psalms. It's been good. It's been real. It's been real good. So hopefully I don't wreck the train this morning. I confess to having some hesitance in choosing this psalm. I I did choose it. I wasn't forced to teach this one. Uh, But I had some hesitance to teach or to choose this psalm from among all of them. Not because it isn't amazing. It's amazing. But I think it's often given a really platitudinous tone or view. Uh, And most people think of something like this, which, I mean, if you have this in some glass cabinet in your house, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, But I think that we've gotten accustomed to associating this psalm with that kind of an image. And um, I think if we can let go of that caricature from our minds and attend for the next 25 minutes or so, perhaps I can show us something quite a bit more potent than that. We all have this strong tendency to fixate on the sheep in this psalm, and it's not a surprise, given our fallen nature and our tendency to sort of be constantly looking at ourselves, but the entire focus of this psalm is on him, the great shepherd, who we know is Jesus Christ. It's the Lord who is doing all of the things in this psalm. I, too, am going to talk quite a bit about the sheep today, but I hope to convey even more strongly the presence of the shepherd and what that means. We're looking at a piece of ancient poetry, a very well-known piece of poetry, and for good reason. It is purely descriptive, and as Sarah helped us see a couple of weeks ago, it is very clearly a psalm of orientation. Taken as a whole, this psalm is one of very few examples of the art elevated to its highest level. Expressive and emotive, concise without being clouded, perhaps a bit too concentrated for us, it reaches down into the depth of the human soul and creates in very few words imagery and experiences that almost defy expression. Almost all of the psalms are poetry of one sort or another, and I want to point out something that can be easy to miss. Even though these scriptures are all poetic in nature, it would be an error to think of them or to equate them with fiction. The psalms are expressions, responsive expressions of praise, lament, anger, joy, and wonder at the experience of living in the kingdom. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Reflections on the Psalms, put it this way. It seems to me appropriate, almost inevitable, that when the great imagination, which in the beginning 
for his own delight and for the delight of men and angels, had invented and formed the whole world of nature and submitted to express itself in human speech, that speech should sometimes be poetry. For poetry, too, is a little incarnation, giving body to what had been before invisible and inaudible. From Lewis, who did not consider himself a great poet, to Bill Shakespeare, whom everyone else does consider a great poet, we find that it is often quite natural for the deepest feelings we experience to be given expression in well-crafted verse. This is certainly true of Psalm 23, so let's get into it now. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall lack no good thing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will be fearless in the face of evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, and my cup is not full, it overflows. I am convinced that mercy and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David reigned as king over a united Israel from about 1000 until 962-ish BC, according to the historical record. And I'd like you to keep in mind who the author of this psalm is as we proceed to look at it piece by piece. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall lack no good thing. As we work through this psalm, I think you will discover that these First five words, the Lord is my shepherd, are the most important. They're the foundation upon which all the rest stands or falls. Written by a man who grew up tending his father Jesse's flocks, David would know more intimately than most what having a good shepherd meant to the sheep. For starters, having a good shepherd would mean that the sheep were well cared for, that they want for nothing, or they lack no good thing. Any careful shepherd will be sensitive to and aware of the needs of his flock, and he will act accordingly. One part of this care would come in the form of the shepherd knowing where and when to find lush pastures, nutritious pastures for his sheep to feed on. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. As I'm sure some of you may know, a sheep, a sheep with the wool and the bah, the sheep is in a group of animals called ruminants. They have multiple sections in their stomach so they can more effectively live on grass and weeds. Um, if you want to try it, you might have some difficulty, um, because you're not a ruminant. Sheep are, among others, cows. These are animals that chew the cud. I don't know if you know that phrase. For those of you who don't, 
This means that they regurgitate food and chew it up some more. Sounds disgusting. Then, when it is swallowed, it moves to the next section of the stomach for more digesting. And I may not be perfectly accurate here, but I think there are four sections in the sheep's stomach for this. I know that's true of goats. Okay, animal husbandry class is over for now. But it's useful to have this knowledge so you can think rightly about a sheep that is lying down in a green pasture. This is a picture of an animal that possesses at least the following two characteristics. One, this animal is not hungry, but is satisfied. Sheep don't eat when they're lying down. They stand to graze. She's not up on her legs grazing, but she is down on the cool ground, chewing the cud. Two, this animal is not sick, but is well and healthy. She is not ailing or fighting some sickness or disorder. She's living the good life under the care and watch of the great shepherd. Again, as I'm sure some of you know, sheep are not particularly fond of water, especially deep water. Quick little story. When my family, when I, my family moved to a farm from town when I was almost six, and I guess my parents would have known this, but I was surprised to find that uh, on the first day that we moved there, it's about 22 acres, I'm out exploring as a, how tall are you when you're five, whatever. Um, and, and I discovered what I assume nobody else knew, that the farm came with eight sheep, living sheep in a barn that nobody had told me about. So I take this discovery and I, like a lightning bolt, back into the house. Mom, Dad, sheep in the barn, come check. And I think they were probably like, duh, we know. We signed the things and I guess it says, must take the sheep, right, with the farm. Anyways, I'm telling this story just to quickly, remember we're talking about deep water. Um, I discover these sheep and I'm fascinated, fascinated by these animals. And probably a couple of days later, as a five-and-a-half-year-old, I get to experience my first, I have my first interaction with death, and it was a little bit brutal. I'm out exploring, as you do when you're five-ish, and I go down to the creek that bisects the farm, and there are all the sheep chased into the water by dogs with their throats ripped out. They're not eaten, they're not gone, just eight sheep laying in the water. Dogs are smart, they're going to run them down, and they run them into the water, and they become so heavy, they can't move, and they die. Most sheep have an innate instinct to surrender when their fleeces become waterlogged. They just give up. When David describes himself as a sheep being led beside still waters, which run deep, do they not? We can recognize another characteristic this sheep enjoys, total lack of fear, worry, or anxiety. This sheep trusts completely in the shepherd. I don't know about you, but I find within myself plenty of room to grow in my trust of the great shepherd. Okay, he restores my soul. I think we can all give David credit for not thinking that sheep have souls. Remember, we're 
we're in a metaphor here. So if nothing else, this is a splendid reminder that we are dealing with poetic, uh, with poetry, and in this case, we're dealing with poetic metaphor. The Bible is loaded with metaphor, and that is to our benefit. But I want to caution you once more not to let this use of metaphor distract you from the deep and beautiful reality which the metaphor points to. David is expressing thoughts and ideas here that are rooted not in mere sentimentality, but in the deepest of realities, which can only be expressed in metaphor. He restores my soul. My shepherd is who he is, and under his care I am made whole again. As Matthew Henry puts it in his commentary on this psalm, Though God may suffer his people to fall into sin, he will not suffer them to lie still in it. You don't get to stay there. When fear and anxiety, distress over my own sin or that of my loved ones, or sickness visits me or my family, my soul becomes broken down. When the enemy attacks me, my soul suffers damage and loss. But when I remember, that I am a sheep in the flock of the great shepherd, and that I am cared for, my soul is restored. As Adam told us at the beginning of this series, brokenness is not the truest truth. He guides me in right paths for his namesake. As has been often stated, and rightly, sheep are not the most intelligent of animals. And though you and I are much greater than livestock in every conceivable way, we too can sometimes act stupidly. Okay, maybe not you, but I can act stupidly. I can be deceived by my enemy, and I can put my own wanton desires ahead of the Lord. So we need a great shepherd to guide us. It is the shepherd who leads from the front because he knows the paths which are safe the sheep, and which lead to good pasture and shelter. It is the shepherd who leads from the front and who sings as he goes, and the sheep are led in right paths. Remember his words from John 10, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My sheep know the sound of my voice. They know my song, and they follow me as I lead them in right paths. In the world of the Bible, a name is not just a collection of sounds used to get someone's attention or to refer to them. Name is a comprehensive way of speaking about someone's character and their attributes. For the sake of his name, his character, he leads his sheep in right paths to the places where they will thrive. This is an expression of true love, ultimate care, and righteous responsibility of the shepherd for the sheep. When I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Are there any 13 to 16-year-old young men in here? 
Surely they're not fifth grader under. I don't, I don't remember. No? Nobody? Any 13 to 16-year-olds, stand up. Young men, there's a couple back here. Stand up. Just real quick. Take a look. Everybody take a look. Okay, you guys can sit back down. Remember who wrote this psalm? David. Could it be that he was vividly reflecting on a valley that he had walked through on numerous occasions? I pointed out these young men because this is likely how old-ish David was thought to be in 1 Samuel 17. When you read that, you will see that David, as a boy of 15-ish years old, stood before the ruler of his nation and informed him with a confidence bordering on brashness that in this work as a shepherd, he had already killed both a lion and a bear to defend his father's sheep from predation. So already David knows what it means to stand in the valley of the shadow of death, to face his enemy, and to conquer. And where is he when he is telling the king this? He's with the armies of Israel in another valley, the valley of Elah, where for six weeks they have endured the jeering and blasphemous taunts of a giant Philistine named Goliath. So yet again, David stands in a valley shadowed by death. Now listen, I'm of average-ish height, probably on the short side. But when the sun is just right in the sky, I can cast a shadow on the ground a good nine or ten feet tall. Andrew, who's not here today, but he's a little taller than me, let's just say, he's a little taller than me. And given the same sunlight, his shadow is going to be much taller than mine, yes? So tell me, how much shadow does a Nephilim giant cast if he's already around nine feet tall? And you can be sure that the shadow he casts as a Philistine battle champion and kind of an all-around bad guy, seemingly, was a shadow of death. Yet our poet fears no evil. How? For the same reason that he could aim straight at the hungry lion and the prowling bear. He was not alone. But the great shepherd, the God of the universe, was with him. Simple words, easily passed over. This is not merely poetic or emotional language. Shepherding is almost always a solitary occupation. But there is every reason to believe that David, as a young man in the wilderness, spent much of his time reflecting on and soaking himself in a living interactive relationship with God. Through engaging his mind in meditation on God's word, the stories that came out of the Torah, the history of the Jewish people, he likely had become very close indeed to the God of his forebears. How did he do this? Was it some special mystical relationship conferred on him by God? I don't think so. He would have trained his mind to fix itself upon God. And through his mind engaging with that history, he would have built that intimate relationship with the God of the universe. One doesn't walk out into the valley of the shadow of death backed only by lip service faith. Nope. When you enter that valley, however that happens for you, you're going to want the God of all creation to be with you. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. 
There are numerous references, both in Scripture and in archaeology, that inform us of the tools that shepherds would carry constantly with them. One was a rod, and this was essentially a club. And it has often been discovered that the shorter club or rod would be carved with a bulbous end opposite the handle, and it would often be spiked with nails on that end. So much for precious moments. This was clearly an offensive weapon, which the shepherd used to protect his flock. Now just reflect with me for a moment on what this means. It means that my shepherd carries in himself the intention to protect me. It's not an accident. It means that he has armed himself specifically for this task because he knows where we are going there are lions, bears, and wolves that will try to devour it. I remember the sheep. But if we look just a bit deeper, we see that this is not a ranged weapon, like a bow and arrows, but this is a melee weapon, as uh, any gamers in the house, I know a couple uh, will understand. This is a melee weapon. This rod is used in close hand-to-hand combat situations. It's only this long. So as a sheep in his flock, I can take comfort in my shepherd's intent to protect me and in his courageous willingness to go toe-to-toe with anything that tries to destroy me. Bring that first slide back up, please. Not this. Not this. But more like this other one. Eh, look at that. It's the best one I could find online. It's a totally different picture. And probably, if you're looking, it gives you a little different feeling about what's going on here, about what's being said. I like, I like that one better. But my shepherd also carries a staff. This is a longer stick, perhaps with a hook on the end, but not always. And this is the tool that he often uses to contact me. He uses it to guide me when I need a small course correction. Hey, get going that way to settle me when I get wound up about that other sheep coming into my grazing zone, to gently nudge me as needed. Now, what does that sound like to you? You think about it. This is is a rhetorical question. To me, it sounds like the law, his commandments to us as God gave them and intended them for us. I think sometimes we often think too little of the marvelous transformation of the world that the law of God was to those who had lived for millennia under satanic regimes. And I think it's probably the only realistic way to understand the beauty of Psalm 19. You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. David here extends this idea of sure protection under the care of the shepherd. Under his care, the sheep will fear for nothing, even when they know they're surrounded by enemies pressing in on them. Now, we typically do not experience feasts or even basic mealtimes the way the ancients did, and I think it might be significantly, significantly to our detriment. For the imagery elicited by this line is powerful. When a feast is prepared, those who intend to fully enjoy it are focused on it with excitement. They eagerly anticipate being together again with their families, their friends, 
their sword brothers and their comrades. They begin to smell the smells of baking bread and roasting meat and steaming vegetables laden with spices and flavors to boggle the mind. They're hearing the musicians tuning up their instruments in preparation for a rousing jam session. They're excited to hear the sounds of tapping the mead keg and the decanting of the wine. In short, they're fully engaged in anticipating the joyous and bountiful feast that's being prepared. What they're not thinking about is war or fear or enemies. They're not on a defensive footing at all. They're relaxed. They're at their ease. Their guard is down. And they're happy. They're happy. They may not even be consciously aware of their enemies. Allow me to ask you this. What could be more infuriating to an enemy than to act and to live and to carry on as if they really just didn't matter that much? That they aren't intimidating or threatening. That they're inconsequential in the grand scheme of living under the care and the protection of the great shepherd. Now, there's another way of looking at this from a slightly different perspective, and I want to cover that too. For those of us who live as if the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the single most meaningful event to ever happen on earth, and that it means what the scripture says it means, see John 12, Matthew 28, and many others, and for those of us who accept the invitation to live in the kingdom where we are being transformed into people who actually love their enemies, what if this is a feast that we would be so at ease and overjoyed to celebrate that we would not be able to resist the urge to invite our enemies to come sit at the feasting table with us? It brings to mind the truce which occurred along the part of the front line on December 24th, 1914, World War I. Combatants are engaged in the fiercest and deadliest war ever fought up to that point on earth. Nine million soldiers and perhaps five million civilians dead in less than five years. And yet, unofficial ceasefires between British and German soldiers took place along parts of the front. In the trenches, on Christmas morning, carols were sung and rations thrown across the opposing lines. It was not long before the more adventurous soldiers started to venture into no man's land. Here they exchanged food, tobacco, cigarettes, drink, badges, buttons, and caps. Games of football even broke out. The only result recorded was a 3-2 victory by the Germans quoted in several soldiers' letters. Invite, not insist. Would that the birth of our Lord and Messiah still had such great effect on us that we would think and act like this. I suppose it depends on what kind of enemy we're thinking of, but it's worth deep consideration. You anoint my head with oil, and my cup is not full, it overflows. Back to the sheep. Among livestock, Sheep are prone to a variety of illnesses and pests. 
And one of the main ways that pests cause stress and discomfort to a sheep is to attempt to infest their heads and bodies. I was going to find a video of the fly that climbs up the sheep's nose and lays its egg in their brain, but you're welcome. <laughs> uh, it's a real thing. I'm not making that up. It's pretty bad. Uh, they bite, they chew, they cause wounds to develop, and they impart diseases, all of which make the animal weak, less vibrant, and healthy than it should be, if not outright killing it. Anyone know what oil often represents in Scripture? actually symbolic of many things, all of them very poignant for us. It represents abundance, health, richness, and surplus. And it's often a parallel in the New Testament to the Holy Spirit. So we can maybe infer here that the psalmist is sharing with us again the great and tender care of the shepherd in helping the sheep deal with the things that pester, infuriate, and weaken us. And we see this is intimate care. This is an image of a shepherd sitting with a sheep on his lap, perhaps. And he's carefully and painstakingly plucking each pest from the sheep's head. And he cleans and dresses the wounds with oils to aid in healing and to repel repeated infestations. If we step out of the metaphor for a moment, we might recognize that this is in our own experience as the infestation of bad ideas from the world, the flesh, and the devil. The care of our shepherd to pluck out false ideas and beliefs and to bring the oil of truth and righteousness to heal our minds is a rich almost beyond description. My cup is overflowing. The great shepherd's care for his sheep is effusive to the point of extravagance. This sheep has been so well cared for that she has more than she needs. If you come to my house and I offer you a glass of wine, I'll pour it for you like any normal person would. You get half a glass, and if you can handle more, I'll give you another half, I guess. But I don't have a wine cellar or a collection of vintage bottles. I have like three from Meyer, $10. Um, this shepherd, though, appears to act as if he not only has a wine cellar, but he behaves as if he owns all the vineyards on all the hills, and that he somehow has the power to make it harvest time all the time. My cup is filling up. Now it's to the brim, and I'm looking at him a bit, dare I say it, sheepishly, as if to say, my Lord, that's enough. But he just keeps pouring it out. And it runs down my elbow and splashes on our feet. And he's looking at me with a knowing smile and a wink and not one single shred of concern for ever running out of wine to share with me. That part gets me every time. I'm convinced that mercy and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. This is a statement made not as a leap of blind faith, as so many often assume, but it is a statement of faith based on what I have seen when I look back over all the ground we've covered as the great shepherd has led us. This is a form of authoritative evidence which places my faith on solid ground. My great shepherd has led me into green pastures of abundance, to cool and refreshing waters to drink, 
through shadowed mountains filled with enemies and to abundant meadows where I can graze to my heart's content. But this journey has not been without its opportunities for fear or anxiety. It has not been without its pests and its infestations, and it has not been without its temptations to go my own way and become lost. Please don't forget for one minute that the author of these lines also endured the following events in his life, among others which I don't list. He was publicly ridiculed by his older brothers in front of Israel's armies. He was despised and hunted by his own father-in-law who tried to kill him on multiple occasions. He was despised by at least one of his own wives. He was confronted and humiliated by God's prophet Nathan who exposed his act of adultery and the murder of Uriah. He was betrayed and chased out of Jerusalem by one of his own sons. He was deeply betrayed by Ahithophel, one of his closest and most trusted friends and advisors. He had to hide among his sworn enemies and feign insanity with drool running down his face just to stay alive. He endured hunger to the point of eating the showbread from the tabernacle. And if you think most of this was quietly hushed up and not mentioned, then I would simply ask you, how do we all know about it? These are not the experiences of a man who was only privileged, only catered to, or was always respected and given the benefits of his rank. But here is this man who, in spite of these things, says, my shepherd is so good, so watchful, so careful over me, that in spite of all these possibilities and all these trials, I am resolutely convinced that when I am with him and he is with me, I experience mercy and loving kindness at every single turn. How is this possible? I would posit this as the main explanation. David was a man who learned how to direct his own mind toward God and to fix his mind there as often and as long as possible. Was he perfect? Certainly not. Surely the widow Bathsheba's grieving and confused tears would reveal the depth of that imperfection, let alone Nathan's scathing story of the rich man stealing from the poor man's lamb. But notice that when he was confronted with his own sin, his habit of turning his heart and mind toward the true God kicked in. Psalm 51 records his repentance. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. These you will not despise. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Often during periods of the year when pasture was not available, the shepherd would move his family to a mezzanine or a second floor of their home and move his sheep into the lower floor for the winter. One thing I forgot to mention, when I was a little kid and we moved to the farm for the two years before the guy died, the sheep lived in the house. So it was a fun little cleanup project. Uh, they lived in the kitchen. The sheep lived in the kitchen. This would allow for many things. It would provide shelter for the sheep from harsh winter weather and from predators, and it would allow the shepherd to easily feed them from his stored supplies of fodder. 
And this would allow the sheep to put on healthy weight to prepare for the following grazing season. So they got to go through the period of winter dormancy, cared for, ready to go for the next spring. When the shepherd king of Israel, David, wrote these last lines, I think he was simply describing that in his heart and mind, there was no greater delight or desire to be imagined or pursued than to dwell in the house of the Lord in his presence always. 